setting is the temple in Jerusalem. A man has been miraculously healed, and it is causing a commotion. And without question, what happened to this man was spectacular. This man had been crippled for decades. Anyone who's ever worn a cast knows that just after a few weeks in a cast, your muscles have become weakened through non-use. Well, presumably, from verse 22 in our passage, this man had not used his feet or his ankles for over 40 years. For all intents and purposes, his legs were dead. It would have been a familiar sight to see him either being carried around by others or dragging himself on the ground from place to place. Unable to work due to his condition, he was completely dependent on the mercy and the generosity of the worshipers who attended the temple. And then in chapter 3, verse 6, this man received a mercy beyond anything that he could have expected. In a command reminiscent of Lazarus come out in John eleven forty three, or Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise in Mark 5, 41, or take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well in Matthew 9, 22, or let there be light in Genesis 1, 1. The man was told by Peter in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. There was nothing gradual about this miracle. It wasn't like the blind man in the Gospels who at first he saw people who were kind of like trees and then he got his full sight restored. No, this was immediately and it was instant. Muscles and tendons that had wasted away from non-use were now strong and sturdy. Ligaments and body tissue that had atrophied his entire life were now completely restored. Cells that had degenerated for decades were now healthy and flourishing. And he wasn't just tiptoeing around. He's walking. He's leaping. He's ready to compete in the high jump in the Olympics. He's praising God. And so the people see this in chapter 3, verse 10 says they are amazed. And Peter seizes this moment and leverages it to proclaim Jesus in the gospel. And so that brings us to our passage this morning. And I have three points if you're taking notes. Point number one, religious opposition. We see that in verses one through seven, religious opposition. Point number two, spirit-filled proclamation. We see that in verses 8 through 12, spirit-filled proclamation. And then point number three, courageous disposition. We see that in verses 13 through 22, courageous disposition. First, religious opposition. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem 
with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? So just as Peter was proclaiming Jesus and preaching the gospel at the temple, some visitors show up. And I just want to take a moment to briefly highlight all the people that Luke names as opposed to Peter and John. So in verse 1, we see the priests. This may refer to those who were mentioned down in verse 6. But these were the people who called the shots at the temple. We also see in verse 1 the captain of the temple. This would have been the captain of the temple guard. The temple guard served a policing function, which is why in verse 3 it says they arrested Peter and John. The temple guard were also the soldiers who had arrested Jesus. Then we see the Sadducees. These were the wealthy, elite, theological liberals. We know from Mark 12, 18 and Acts 23, 8 that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And we see here in verse 2 that they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Then in verse 5, we see rulers, elders, and scribes. Rulers perhaps refer to the local government. Elders refer, refer to influential older men who lived in Jerusalem. And scribes refer to men whose job it was to know and to copy the scriptures. Taken together, rulers, elders, and scribes is probably a reference to the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish court. Then in verse 6, we see Annas. Annas was recognized as the high priest, even though he had been removed from that position by the Romans years earlier and replaced with Caiaphas. But in the mind of the Jewish people, Annas was still looked at as the high priest. Then also verse 6, we see Caiaphas. This was Annas' son-in-law who was in the role of high priest. And then finally in verse 6, we see John, Alexander, and members of the high priestly family. One thing that Luke is making crystal clear is that the apostles were dealing with a powerful group of people. Humanly speaking, this wasn't a fair fight. The disciples were up against religious power, governmental power, financial power, social power. These people literally ran Jerusalem. And notice how they abused their power. Simply because they didn't like what the apostles were teaching, they took away their freedom by arresting them in verse 3. Maybe they were trying to scare the apostles, put them in jail overnight. Maybe that would teach them a lesson and keep them quiet. But what they didn't realize is that while they may have locked the apostles up, they could not lock the word of God up. <laughs> Amen. But many of those, verse 4, who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. In this, the first recorded persecution of the church, what we see here is what we've seen throughout church history, that God often takes the very opposition to the gospel that's meant to shut down the gospel, and he uses it as a means to spread the gospel. The gospel is unstoppable. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy from a Roman prison. 2 Timothy 2.8, remember Jesus Christ, 
risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. So while Peter and John were restricted in their movements, the gospel continued to move in the hearts of those who believe. The point is, no matter how powerful a group of people may be, even when they sinfully abuse their power, nothing and no one can stop God's purposes. The gospel is unstoppable. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the minds of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Another thing to notice about this group, beyond the fact that they were powerful, is that they were religious. This was a religious group of people, and that should be a warning for all of us. The people who were most outwardly associated with God were the very ones who were most opposed to the work of God. Remember who's in this group? Priests, scribes, elders. These people knew the Bible. They handled the things of God all the time. These were respected religious leaders. These are the ones who would be asked to speak at a wedding or a funeral or perhaps uh, provide blessing at the birth of a child. They had the best religious education, the most degrees. They knew the Torah back and forth, and yet they did not know God. God was at work in their midst, and they were doing everything that they could to stop it. Jesus warned about them in Mark chapter 12, verse 38. He said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. That's scary from the mouth of the Lord Jesus, receiving the greater condemnation. And it should be a sobering reminder to all of us that loud public association with God is meaningless apart from private, humble devotion to God. Loud public association with God is meaningless apart from private, humble devotion to God. After Peter and John spend the night in jail, we're told in verse 5 that they're brought before the Jewish leaders. And you have to try to imagine how intimidating this must have been. Notice what it says in verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst. So the apostles were literally surrounded by the most powerful and influential religious leaders in Jerusalem. The whole situation feels like it was set up for maximum intimidation. And then they're asked a question. By what power or by what name did you do this? When they say by what name, what they're asking is, who gave you the authority to do what you just did, referring to the healing of the crippled man? Now, it could be that this line of questioning was actually a trap. Because in Deuteronomy 13, it says that if someone does a sign and doesn't attribute it to Yahweh, that that person should be put to death. Also, it's very similar to a question that some of these same people asked Jesus just a few months earlier. Luke 20, verse 1, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders, same group of people, came up and said to him, 
tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? Now, the Lord didn't indulge their question at the time. He actually answered them back with a question that they refused to answer. But Peter here engages their question directly, and that brings us to our second point. Our first point, religious opposition. Second point, spirit-filled proclamation. Look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, the first question that hits me when I read this is, wait, hold up. Is this Peter? Is, is this the same Peter? Now, if that question doesn't come to your mind, Let's just refresh our memories. Matthew 26, 69. Now Peter, same guy, was sitting outside in the courtyard. And a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you, you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So just a few months earlier, he's cowering before a servant girl and calling down curses on himself, talking about Jesus. I don't know him. Jesus who? Who are you talking about? I don't know the man. Four months later, he's standing boldly before the most powerful leaders in Jerusalem, proclaiming Jesus as risen from the dead and the only way of salvation. How do you account for that? Two answers. Answer number one, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. That phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, appears a number of times in the book of Acts. And in almost every case, what follows is bold proclamation concerning Jesus and the gospel. Just a few verses down after our passage in verse 31, we see the believers gathered, and it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and what follows? They continue to speak the word of God with boldness. This is the fulfillment of what the Lord Jesus said would happen in John 15. John 15, 18, Jesus tells his disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And then in John 15, 26, it says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And that's exactly what we see happening in this passage. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he begins to testify about Jesus. By the way, that is the primary work of the Holy Spirit in this world, to testify to Jesus. So much is done in the name of the Spirit that has nothing to do with Jesus. If you want to know, is the Spirit at work in a place, ask the question, is Jesus being exalted? Is the gospel being proclaimed? Is the glory of God at the center of it? The Spirit does not point to himself. The Spirit points to Jesus. This is the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of Peter. Apart from the Spirit, he's afraid of a servant girl. With the Spirit, the filling of the Spirit, he's bold before powerful men. Here's a simple application. Is there anyone in your life that you desire to share the gospel with, but you're afraid? Maybe a coworker, maybe a classmate, maybe a family member. You've been wanting to share the gospel with them, but when the time comes for you to open your mouth, you just, just kind of freeze up with fear. I know that fear. You know what we can do in those moments? We can pray. Even when we're with the person, silently, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Give me boldness that I might proclaim the gospel to this person. That's what the spirit did for Peter, and he'll do it for us as well. And so that's the first way that we account for Peter's newfound boldness, the Holy Spirit. The second way that we account for it is the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. The resurrection changed everything for Peter. Remember that he's literally standing before the very same people who arrested Jesus and had him put to death. If Jesus had stayed in the grave, it would make no sense whatsoever for Peter to be willing to suffer prison and possibly death for something that he knew was a lie. No, Peter knew that Jesus conquered the grave, which means that all his followers will also conquer the grave. Therefore, the Jewish leaders had no power over him. The worst thing that they could do was put him to death. But Peter knew that for the believer to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. It's a win-win situation. You don't have that apart from the resurrection. Also, take note of what the leaders don't say. They could have ended the entire discussion by simply producing the body of Jesus. But they couldn't do it because the tomb was empty. It was true then and it's true now that the empty tomb answers all objections to the truth of Christianity. You cannot deconstruct an empty tomb. No matter how hard you try, you can't deconstruct an empty tomb. 
If you're tempted to walk away from Jesus this morning, consider the empty tomb. What are you going to do with that? Jesus is alive. He's alive and well. And so it's the spirit and the resurrection that gave Peter the boldness to speak to the leaders the way that he did. And I just, I just love his boldness. In this formal address, notice how first he points out how ridiculous it is that they were arrested in the first place. Verse 9, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man. Like, like just, he, he's exposing the, how, how ridiculous they're being. Like, really? You have us on trial because a man who was crippled from birth has been healed? That's why we're here before you? This is reminiscent of Jesus asking the scribes and Pharisees in Luke 6, 9, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And then Peter, I love it, he says the very thing that they don't want to hear. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified... Notice how he's just throwing it right back at them. So, so I, I can just imagine that the, the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, I'm sure they thought, we got rid of Jesus. We got rid of him months ago. And now here he is again popping up through his apostles. And I love it. He throws in a shot at the Sadducees, whom God raised from the dead. <laughs> right? Yeah, I know. Y'all don't believe in the resurrection. This Jesus, God raised him from the dead. And I love it. He throws in a shot, a, a quote from, from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders has rejected has become the cornerstone. And then he gives immediate application to them. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then for good measure, in verse 12, G, uh, Peter proclaims Jesus as the only way to God, the only way to be saved. Salvation there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You want to talk about offensive. Oh, my goodness. This is offensive, especially to the Jewish mind. So in the, in the mind of the first century Jew, when you talk about salvation, the only name connected with salvation is Yahweh to the first century Jew. Isaiah 45, 21, there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. And so what Peter is doing is he's saying salvation is only found in Jesus. So in doing so, he's equating Jesus with Yahweh. That is offensive. And it wasn't only offensive then to talk about Jesus as the only way to God. It's offensive now. We talk about Jesus. Now, I don't know what it's like in the Bible Belt, but where I'm from, you talk about Jesus as the only way to God? There's no other way, there's no other way to get to God except through Jesus. Where I'm from, you say that in some place, you're getting in a fight. Like, like, like people want to hurt you for real. It's offensive. The only way to God? How could you be so narrow? How could you be so intolerant? It's interesting because we don't say that about other things. So if tomorrow there was a cure for cancer discovered, nobody would say, oh, well, why has there only got to be one cure? Why can't there be many cures for cancer? Nobody would say that. If you were inside of a burning house, 
and there's only one door to get out. Oh, oh, why is there only got to be one way to get out the house? Why can't I get through the window? Like, nobody talks like that. You know what? They, they will be thankful that there's a way. And if, and if we truly understand our sinfulness in light of a holy God and what our sins deserve, we will be thankful that there's even one way to be saved. You know who would be really thankful if there was one way to be saved? The fallen angels. You ever think about the fallen angels? Like the human fall wasn't the first time there was a fall. There was a fall before our fall, which was the fall of the angels. And you know what happened to them? Condemned immediately. No means of salvation, no way to be saved at all. That was it for them. They got no opportunity. And the angels that did not fall will have no problem praising God for all eternity for his righteousness, his holiness, and his justice. And that's what we deserve. We deserve to be condemned for our sins, but God has provided a way to be saved, and that is through Jesus. Jesus is the only way because he is the only one who answers humanity's greatest problem, which is our sin against a holy God. This is why the gospel is such good news. Look, we all come into this world with hearts that are opposed to God. We don't have to teach children how to be disobedient. They already know. It's amazing. They come out the womb just knowing how to disobey. And what we do throughout our lives is we compound that original state that we're in with actual rebellion against God, and that is sin, and that deserves death, eternal death. And in the gospel, God has done the unthinkable. He sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come into this world, to live the perfect life that none of us could ever live, to go to the cross and die on the cross as a substitute, taking on himself the curse, the full curse against our law-breaking. He suffered, Jesus, on the cross, the wrath of God that we deserve. And on the third day, he rose from the grave so that everyone who places their trust in him, in Christ alone, he promises shall be saved from the wrath to come. That is the good news of the gospel. It saved many of us in here, and it can save you even today if you would believe. And I just want to say something to the children right now. Kids, all the kids in the building. Hello. Hi, child. What's up? <laughs> all the kids. Yeah, I see you. I see you. All the kids in the building. I love that there's so many kids in here. Praise God. I have something else to say about that, but I won't say it now. Praise God the kids are here. Listen, children, I just, I just want to say this to you kids. The best thing that you could possibly do, children, yeah, is place all your hope, all your trust, and all your confidence in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. There is no person in this universe who is better, who even comes close to being better than Jesus. And let me say this, children. You do not have to wait until you're old like your parents to trust in Jesus. 
You can believe in him now, and he will accept you, and he promises that if you believe in him and trust in him, that you can spend all eternity in his presence with nothing but happiness and joy, and it's way more joy than you could ever get from a toy or a video game or anything like that. Jesus is amazing. And if you have any other questions about that, ask your parents, ask your grandparents, ask whoever brought you. Brothers and sisters, that's not only true for kids, that's true for big kids like us as well. There's no one better than Jesus. And Peter and the apostles knew this, and this is why they were proclaiming him. Let's consider, finally, courageous disposition. Look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So the leaders were blown away. They didn't have a category for uneducated men going toe-to-toe with them on theology. But actually, they should have had that category because back in John 7, 15, it says the Jews marveled about Jesus saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? And it was undeniable because the crippled man was standing. You see what it says in verse 14? seeing the man who was healed standing beside them. So that that language is there intentionally. This man is standing there. There's nothing, like, what can they say? It's obvious that he's been healed. This is a fulfillment of what Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 20. In Luke 20, 12, he said that they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. And that's exactly what we see here. The leaders, they they could not withstand or contradict what the apostles were saying. And so the leaders had a dilemma and they didn't know what to do. And so they tell them to leave in verse 15 so they could talk amongst themselves. Look at verse 15. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Talk about self-condemning words. A miracle has occurred, and we cannot deny it. They're going to have to give an account to the Lord on the last day for those words. Because instead of repenting after that, it says, but in order that the word, uh, in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. And so here they had an opportunity to humble themselves and repent. There was a genuine sign that happened. They acknowledge it. But rather than repent and reconsider the claims of Jesus, they doubled down on their unbelief. Verse 21, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. As we close, I just want to consider the idea of a sign. 
the sign of healing that was performed. What happened with this man, this crippled man, was spectacular. It was great. It was amazing. But you know what? Eventually, that man, at some point, he got older, he got sick, and he died. So as great as that sign of healing was, it was a temporary thing. It was not an eternal thing. And thinking about the idea of signs, it reminds me of the idea that imagine that you're on the highway on the way to the beach, and you see a sign on the highway that says, beach in 10 miles. How foolish would it be to see that sign, pull the car over, jump out, grab your blankets and your umbrella and your tropical drink, and just chill underneath that green piece of metal? That would be ridiculous. The sign is like, like oh, don't stop here. The, the beach, go to the beach. See the ocean. See the water. See the waves. This, this green piece of metal is nothing. Well, in the same way, the sign of healing that Jesus or that the apostles, Jesus through the apostles performed on this crippled man, that was a sign pointing to the greater reality which is the healing of our sin sickness that the Lord Jesus accomplished in his death at Calvary and his glorious resurrection. As great as the miracle was, that man eventually died. But for those who trust in Jesus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. 